Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. We are co-hosts for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And today we're joined by Principal Analyst TJ Kitt to discuss why B2B companies need to pay attention to customer experience or CX. Welcome, TJ. Thank you for having me. TJ, could you start just where are we with B2B companies with CX, given that CX has been sort of a mainstay strategy for B2C companies for a number of years? I think we're at a point where they are trying to play catch up. I think they recognize that there is something important about focusing on customer experience. I think where they struggle is explaining how it's important and why it's important. Um, But I think a lot of that confusion and a lot of that struggle has to do with the fact that they haven't really conceptualized what it is that they have done historically for their customers to provide a good experience and what that has meant for their business. For example, you've got a sales force and that sales force spends a whole lot of time trying to make you know, fruitful relationships with your, your clients. They'll take them on junkets, they'll take them golfing, things of that nature. That's creating an experience. You haven't necessarily quantified that. You've given your salespeople budget to do those sorts of things. So that is a, a form of quantifying the value in doing those sorts of things. But you haven't necessarily thought about it in context of that being part of the experience that you deliver to your customers. Um, so there, there are things like that that companies have done over time that would point to them having sort of an intrinsic understanding that we need to deliver a good customer experience. But it's been sporadic in, in terms of how it's delivered. And it's been compartmentalized to different departments dealing with different types of stakeholders in their client accounts at different moments in the customer lifecycle. So one of the principles in the B2C CX universe is orchestration, and orchestrate in the context of a journey. And your comment about the junkets and otherwise is well-intended, may indeed have payoff, but underlying it is not a sense of orchestration. There are more point in time. What do I want to get out of the client at that moment to get one, this thing done or that thing done? Exactly which has actually led to kind of some of the movements that we've covered here at Forrester, such as customer success management. It's this idea that we have orchestration in certain parts of the business. So we, you know, spend a lot of time talking about how you put a lead into the funnel and how you turn that lead into a closed deal. There is orchestration there. We understand how we move a customer through that process. What we don't know is how we then make sure that the customer, once they've signed the contract, actually gets what they were promised. Because there isn't a lot of coordination on the back end. There, are, there hasn't been, historically, in a lot of tech companies, a way of bringing together the people who have to support the customer when things break, or people who have to support the customer when they have questions about their bill, with the people who make the product, people who deliver the product, people who implement the product, and so on. And because you have these different groups acting at different times with different stakeholders, there hasn't been a great way for the business to then holistically think about what is our post-sale experience? How does that post-sale experience then deliver value? And then more importantly, how do we make sure the client realizes that they got value out of that? Is there a reason why this topic is sort of coming to a head right now that there's much more attention, you know, because to Victor's point, this has been, we've been talking about CX and B2C for a while. Is there something, something happening today that this is like, okay, we really need to address this? Right. Well, I think one of the important things that's happened, particularly on the, on the tech side, it's this idea that, yes, the salespeople deal with the business champion or the economic buyer, but that business champion or economic buyer is no longer you know, simply the final say on the matter. So let's say you sell, you sell servers 
you know, for years you sold someone a box, they put that box into their data center and that box ran a whole bunch of workloads. And there wasn't much opportunity for the individuals who were the users of those different workloads or consumers of the services delivered by those workloads to go anywhere else. But then we introduced this thing called the cloud. And the cloud provided a whole bunch of opportunities for people who use different workloads that sat on those servers to find those services elsewhere. And you know, even more importantly, for people who then built things that ran on those servers to find the opportunity to, to use infrastructure that wasn't housed primarily in that data center. So if you're now a, a person that's selling servers, you have to ask yourself the question, all right, I'm losing workloads. I'm losing potential application builds on this server. Why is that? Who are these individuals who are making these decisions at a departmental level that I haven't spoken with before? And how do I ensure that I am actually delivering value to that individual or group of individuals so that I can keep as many of those workloads as possible, either on the infrastructure that I'm delivering into their data center or some other arrangement that I've made, whether it's like my own private cloud environment out in my own data centers to keep that relationship going. So I think what we're seeing is, I don't want to use the kind of the trite term democratization, but I, I do see that there's, there is a greater realization that there is more empowerment of different stakeholders within businesses that can materially affect the nature of the relationship that you have with your clients. And so focusing on different types of experiences and different groups that are having those experiences has become important. Two words come to mind as you answer the question, like Copernicus and Kennedy, which is the company revolves around the customer. But in your talk track, the customer revolves around the company still in the B2B world. And it's really what does the customer do for the company, not the other way around? Like it's, it's we still have sort of a, a backwards mentality a bit because it's a lot of what the investments and the experience are is I want the client to go do this thing that gets me what I want to get done. They get done when Or very transactional in nature. Very transactional, yeah. but, it's, but it's also not centered on, I mean, a little bit, you, you touched on it, TJ, which is what's the value that the customer is actually getting, wanting and getting? What is the outcome that they got either emotionally or some sort of some job fulfillment or some quantitative thing? It seems like there's too little of that at the beginning, middle, and end of this story. I would agree. I would, I would say that, you know, especially in the tech industry, we have focused historically on selling you on an idea of features to match a specification. And we haven't done a great job of explaining to you what those features and what those specifications that you have actually then will do for your business. Um, I think it's, it's kind of a, a twofold problem. Um, I'm actually kind of in the middle of some research on this, so it's, it's, it's come up a lot, but Clients often don't have a clear idea as to why it is that they're buying something. And the vendor doesn't have a great way of then parroting back what they've heard from other clients because they don't have a, a large number of clients explaining to them what the value is. Um, so to give an example, um, let's say you sell video units. You know, you sell video communications for people. One, uh, you know, there, there are two ways this conversation can go. I want to have this video unit because I know that our competitors are talking to their clients via video. And so we want to have video as well. That is a goal, I guess, but it doesn't actually articulate 
what you think is going to be valuable to your customers or why it's going to be valuable to your business. It's more of a kind of a, a me too thing. We want to be in parity. And so if I am trying to then sell you on value, there's nothing for me to sell you. It's I'm selling, you want to have this unit because you think your competitors have it. Thus, here is that video unit. Go forth and have video. What I haven't done is I haven't created a condition where I'm telling you, well, for this segment of your customer base that wants to interact with you via video, this is what this video unit can do to create that engagement, to help with this sale, to do this sort of demonstration, things of that nature that then become quantifiable and then allow for you to have a, a broader conversation about how this was valuable in this context and how it materially changed some element of your business. We just haven't done a great job of that. You know, we haven't done a great job of you know creating that reciprocity in the marketplace where we deliver something to our clients, our clients use it and then explain to us what they've done, thus allowing us to understand what is valuable about this. Yeah, I think underneath this, at least to me, and I'm old enough to remember that the big the big tectonic shift that didn't happen between I'm moving from a product company to a solutions company that started in like 2000. And now we're now we're, we're coaching folks to be customer obsessed. And it's all sort of in the larger spirit of that in the B2B world, most companies are oriented in a supply-side manner because the P&L creates extraordinary gravity. I mean, just extraordinary gravity. And it's very hard to move in that different context. And to your point, just the, the plethora of different people that sit that on the buy side or on the customer side of that disallows the humanity to take place in obvious ways. And so it begins to be very dispassionate. One of the things that pushes is this idea of differentiation, which typically is, you know, two people in marketing talking and they're going to say, our product is good. The next one says, well, that's not strong enough. It's really good. And one says, you're right. I mean, we have momentum. It's really, really good. In fact, it's so damn good. It's darn right unique. And they push that uh, out. And they're, and they're Yeah, <laughs> and it's just crazy. And all of a sudden that collateral is going to win the day. And that's how they thought of differentiation. One question I had for you is, can CX be a point of differentiation that's not baked into collateral or baked into talk track or stuff like that, but actually an experiential thing that says, this whole thing is so much better than that thing over there, I'm staying with it. Yeah, I think it can. Um, I think it it can in in areas where, kind of like on the consumer side, um, there isn't a lot of differentiation. You You aren't unique in this regard. So take Rackspace. Rackspace for years has sold their clients on the idea of fanatical support. You know, we're we're selling you infrastructure. You know, we're selling you data center resources. We're selling you the ability to manage um, cloud apps like Office 365. And there isn't a whole lot of differentiation in, say, just doing that. You know, you could get that from Amazon. You could get that from Google. You could get that from whoever. Um, but what we're going to really set ourselves apart on is this idea that we're going to really be in your corner and we're going to do a lot. Pre and more importantly, post-sale when exactly. the value actually is accrued. Exactly. So, you know, we're going to be fanatics, as the name would, would apply, about delivering to you, you know, support wherever you need. So you know, building out a customer community in which they are you know, deeply engaged, having a social media command center where they're listening for any complaints or any issues, and then you're kind of working hard to meet their customers there, um, you know, kind of setting up their contact center op- um, operations around this idea of being able to su- supply that sort of support becomes kind of an important part of you know, how they tell a differentiate, differentiated story about the experience that they're delivering. 
So I think there are those sorts of opportunities. But I think, again, what it comes back to is you have to be aware enough about what it is that you do, what's valuable about it, and then how do we help the client get that value. But also what those, like empathy for the client and not client as like a, you know, monolithic, monolithic thing. Like who are all of those people? Like an account. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Right. Um, Who are all those people who are either, to your point, the signing the contract, but influencing the decision. That's, that's a different ball game. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Um, And it goes back to kind of that, that core thing. You have to remember that, just because it's a business doesn't mean that you know they aren't people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was beautiful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Period. Full stop. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, TJ. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, I'm you know I'm from an IBM household. Like both of my parents worked at IBM. My father's a 30 year IBMer, um, and you know, coming from an IBM household, you learn IBM truisms. <laughs> and right. one of those IBM truisms was this idea of no one was ever fired for buying IBM. That is a that is an experience promise, mm-hmm. right? You know that there there are things that are tied up in that around what it's going to do for your business, but there are also things tied up in that, that statement about what it's going to do for you personally. And so that's what we all have to come back to. It's that we are we are helping our clients, all those different stakeholders in an account, do something personally, and something professionally. And if we keep that as our as our true north, then I think it makes it a lot easier for us to then hone in on those ideas of, of value, of, you know, what's going to drive loyalty, of what's going to drive, you know, things like retention and enrichment and advocacy and, and referenceability and things of that nature. So one question I have for you is that, you know, three different types of B2B companies and, and are there differences in how we should think of CX? So one is high tech, as you mentioned, which is purely a company to company relationship. It's not really B2B2C, it's B2B and it's really orientation. Then healthcare insurance, which mostly sells through companies to employees, which is B2B2C, but the member experiences are so important for cost control and other considerations. And then you have banks, which at a divisional level have a commercial, a retail side of the house and then a commercial side of the house. So is there any differences in terms of how CX plays out in those three different arenas? I think it's a matter of orientation and what you care about ultimately. Um, so in a B to B to C relationship, for example, um, the question is, you know, how are you defining your customer? So you could reasonably, I would argue, say that we are abstracted from the C part of it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus my efforts on making sure that the other B in this B to B to C part is well positioned to be successful in supporting the C. So in that regard, it actually then begins working out like a partner relationship, you know, where you say, all right, so I've got, I sell through channel. So how can I position my channel to better serve our customers? Um, So Google, for example, just to kind of pull it back into um, the tech world, I guess, Um, Google focuses on customer success management but they have outsourced customer success management to their partners. You know, they have a program where they help their partners set up a customer success program, and then they run that program on Google's behalf. The same general principle can apply in a B2B2C world. And you know, I've had conversations with companies in the oil and gas industry, for example, who are struggling with this idea that 
we sell to, you know, we have filling stations that carry our name. They're our partners, but ultimately they own the consumer relationship. So how do we bypass them and get to the consumer? Well, that may be the wrong question. You know, your customer, ultimately the person that you should be focusing on is how do you make that guy who's running maybe five filling stations, um, how do you make him successful? You know, what are the things that you put in place to help him deliver a better customer experience? Because ultimately you're not going to get around him. You need him. You're not going to run all these stations yourself. So instead of trying to disintermediate him or try to understand a lot about the different types of people that go into this, this area, understand what he needs and understand and use that as then the focus point for how you would then you know, help guide perhaps his research on his customer base or the tools that you put into place you know, around, say, credit card payments or you know, the in-pump entertainment systems that, uh, that people now are beginning to put into place. You know, is that good? Is that bad? Help him make I those sorts of decisions. I think those are weird. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I'm not good or bad. I just think it's really odd to pump your gas and have someone this thing. And it's, it's best to, if you're looking for speed in the pumping, she's like, I don't want to, I don't want to get through the commercial part. I just want to get through this thing. And, 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 and there we are. Just, I know. <laughs> and we have, we, we now have our first bit of real feedback. Right, that we can there we go. <laughs> I'm sure it's valuable. <laughs> it's interesting way you phrased it because, and I'll use GDPR as the example. So GDPR sort of says that the ecosystem is collectively um, liable for any privacy breaches. Where you sit, whether you are directly or indirectly, the ecosystem has some shared or full liability. And the same thing could be held true for whether a franchise model, as you describe it in the um, oil and gas, which is a gas station itself, whether it's franchised or not, or owned by the, right. by the entity, is the idea that ultimately, if the brand is reaching as far, if it's just Shell Station, then the, the experience should reach as far as the brand reaches. And therefore, the ecosystem is whether it's empowered through, like in a channel structure you mentioned, or empowered by, it doesn't really matter. It says you're still, you're still liable for the goodness of that experience. Right. That, yeah. I mean, I think that's, that is true. And it's something that we've tried to articulate in some of our reports on partner relationships. Um, and it's some stuff that we've seen in some preliminary work that we've done on B2B tech customer experience, um, that the customer makes no distinction. Your name's on the box. So it doesn't matter that, you know, this system's inter, um, implementer is the one that's installing the box. If the system implementer has a problem installing the box, it's because you made what was in the box too hard to install. It's your fault. Or you recommended the system's in, implementer because I got the name off of your website. So it's your fault. It's your fault. I think that's kind of the bottom line. So <laughs> it is or not. It right. is. It is kind right. of thing. And I think that's, I mean, that's a classic issue of B2B where everyone just says, whose fault is it when points their finger at the other guy? Right. So either way, everyone's in the room at that point in time. Everyone's in the room. Yeah. So I think, you know, that's the important thing to kind of keep in mind is that they are representing you. And so the question becomes, how do you position them to represent you? So if you look at like Salesforce, for example, um, you know, one of the things that they do is, you know, for their, their SIs, they have their customer success group actually take on board consultants from their SIs to shadow them. They, here's how we engage with our clients. Here's how we deal with these different situations so that there's a knowledge transfer and an understanding of what the expectations are in that experience that that partner, that that consultant from that SI can then take back and use in their own engagements around Salesforce's products. But it's, it springs from the idea that Salesforce understands, you know, perhaps intrinsically, that at the end of the day, this is all our fault. So, so we do need 
to have some influence, some say over the individuals who are representing us and deploying our software for us on our client sites. And as you think of CX and B2B, uh, do you think of it as defensively, I'm going to put forth a set of disciplines and actions because I want to play defense against it could be my fault or the, I'm not matched up to the brand. I'm going to do it because everyone else is doing it, so it may, be, it may be neutral. Or I'm going to do it because actually this is a growth driver of my business and this could mean you know, X or Y percent points on renewal, enrichment, whichever way you want to measure financial impact at that point in time. Yes. Which, which, all, <laughs> all, of the above. all of the above. The value of customer experience is really going to depend on how your business is orchestrated, what market it sits in, things of that nature. Same principles apply in B2B. Um, you can labor under the assumption that our clients are locked in. Like if you're a chemical manufacturer um, and the chemical that we make is a, is a proprietary compound and our clients can only come to us to get that compound and it's a part of their product, clients are locked in. So the customer experience per se is not going to differentiate us. The molecule differentiated us. So then the, the customer experience, we're using that as a way of perhaps driving down complaints or we're using customer experience as a way of, you know, kind of elevating our view or the view of us as a thought leader in the marketplace, which could perhaps help with some upsell or you know, give us cachet that was going to help pull us into other sorts of deals, open the doors for other molecules that we have perhaps produced. So there are, there are different ways of kind of, of, of looking at the value of customer experience based on what it is that, um, that your business actually is doing and how it's competing in the market. I love your example because if you look at the, the athletic um, market and you look at Adidas or Nike, whatever, they're, they're increasingly selling through technology. I right? mm -hmm. say our shoe, the underlying technology in this shoe, this shirt, this whatever is different then, which, which brings to bear the, you know, the BASFs or the DAOs of the world, others that are at the molecule level as you described it. So it, it does bring up this, they have this opportunity to create experiences for B2B to C that says our molecules, this is how they work, this is how they built, it's educational, it's fun, right. which could advantage, let's say, New Balance or advantage, yeah. you know, Adidas, whatever it might be. So they become formidable in that channel, which your point may have a net effect on cachet, net effect on future sales kind of thing. I mean, it, yep. there's a whole world of experiences now available to people that were you know, lower in the food chain, if you will. Yeah. And I would say what I would come back to is this idea that we are trying to deliver something that is valuable to our clients. And it doesn't matter what field you're in. So if we take the kind of the molecule example, you're a chemical company, um, that client is going to be using that in context of their business. If they can't properly use your molecule, it doesn't matter how great the molecule is because they're going to misapply it or they're going to be unable to take full advantage of it. So knowledge transfer, can you help them run their factory better? Can you help them run their labs better? Um, you know, advice, you know, can you help them understand how to take this and use it as a part of a compound? Um, you know, can you help them, you know, through things like joint patents, you know, kind of build, you know, new polymers or things of that nature. So, I mean, there's a lot of opportunities, I think, you know, around developing or a customer experience that fits your industry but is, again, focusing on that, that true north of what is valuable to our customers. The example that you were just giving sort of made me think of community and the power of community, and that is, uh, you know, a big deal in some B2C companies. Um, 
and increasingly so, I believe, for B2B. And maybe it's old hat in some organizations like Salesforce, as an example, large communities there. How are you seeing that play out in maybe non-traditional industries in the B2B space? I mean, there's limitations, obviously, kind of you know, based on like legal things <laughs> um, mm-hmm. um, in terms of how communities work. But I, I do think that they have been an important part of the B2B customer experience, especially on the tech side, for a while now. Um, so if you, if you come back to that, that, that Rackspace example, yep. um, fanatical support isn't delivered solely by Rackspace. It's because they have a group of really invested and engaged customers who like to help other customers using Rackspace's technology. So they become extensions of this notion of radical support. Sometimes, um, you know, I've heard this from them, you know, their clients will answer issues on social media faster than they can get to it. You know, so, so there are things like that that you begin to see in terms of, you know, if it's clear how your community can support you in delivery of your experience, then you can basically kind of aim them in that direction. And so here's our community. We're trying to aim you in the direction of helping each other. Or, you know, here's a hashtag that we try to own. We're trying to aim you in the direction of having conversations around this hashtag, which allows for you then to kind of help each other as those things come up. So I think there's, there are opportunities like that in B2B tech and probably in other B2B areas, but I'm just not as conversant yep. in those areas. So you've done a very good job laying out the argument that it's it, that it's good, whether it's Overcoming a negative, staying neutral on PAW, or, or achieving a positive. I I've dabbled in it. I hobby in it. What's your, what's the advice to folks that actually want to make this something formidable in their company? I mean, I think the first thing to kind of recognize is that you already deliver a customer experience. Um, it's something that your business does. It's like how you go to market. It's how you position your product. It's how people use your product, and so on. The question you have to back up and then ask is, has this been valuable for your clients? Or are they here by virtue of inertia or lock-in or some vague notion of strategic partnership? And does that then leave them open? So kind of a concept that I've been you know, kind of toying around with and trying to work on is, um, you know, do you have a defensible 20%? You know, we have that rule, the 80-20 rule, 20% spend, does 80% of the spending for your business. Is that 20% defensible? Do they see enough value? Have they seen enough partnership? Have they seen enough you know, kind of goodness out of their relationship so that if an alternative appears into the marketplace, they are less likely to churn as a consequence of, of that emergent vendor? I think it's a lesson that you know, if you look at kind of um, like Microsoft. Microsoft, I think, learned that lesson you know, when they for a while forwent you know, the idea of having a real mobile strategy around Office. It allowed for, you know, Evernote to appear in the marketplace and, you know, um, Prezi to appear in the marketplace because those were more mobile-friendly solutions. And then Microsoft kind of looked and said, oh, we are seeing, we're seeing people who could potentially chip away at some of the value that we were delivering to our customers over time, which meant that that 20%, was less defensible than it was before. So we have to redouble our efforts and creating a, a real mobile app strategy that goes across devices and across platforms. And so I think that's, a, that's kind of a, a conversation that most companies, irrespective of you know, whether they sell to the consumers or businesses, need to have internally. You know, 
for this core customer base that we're going to need to weather any storm that comes in our business. Have we created an experience and are we delivering enough value to these individuals and in enough differentiated ways to create partnership that it is defensible against any sort of emergent threats in the marketplace? And do you see the the discipline of CX that has been born in in advance in B2C, do you see it in a similar way as B2B? I mean, obviously done in a B2B context, but does the does the tactics, the discipline change or is it really to the same thing? I mean, I think a lot of the a lot of the approaches are the same. Like a journey map is a journey map is a journey map, for example. Um, surveying is surveying is surveying. I think that you know, the, the different beats come in, how you determine what is the most important individual, who is the most important individual that you should be looking at in this company, and why are they important to you? Um, is the person who signs the checks the most important person in this conversation? And thus, we should focus all of our efforts on understanding that individual or is it the person who is championing this in the business who may be different from the person who signs the checks? Or is it the lawyer? Or is it the end user? Or is it some combination of those individuals? And do we need to know kind of how much force they exert on the relationship dependent on where the customer is in the life of the relationship? So I think that's kind of the, that's the difference in the complexity that we have to recognize in the B2B arena. But I think that the tactics, you know, in terms of the tools that people have available to them are mostly the same. I, you know, where there probably is, you know, some difference, at least at this point, is in specific disciplines like customer success management, which has found more of a home at this point in time in B2B. Although the, the, the principle still applies to B2C in, the, in that we're still trying to search for a way to defend our 20%. In the 20%, as you said, there's a multitude of players on the client side or the customer side that are in motion from procurement to the economic buyer to whoever they might be. And you see firms sort of pitching up personas. In some ways, they're useful because they 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 demystify something that's if it's fully unknown to you. And in some ways, they're not useful because it sort of creates this, like I begin to define the persona of who I want them to be, not necessarily who they are. And it may not motivate me to actually get to know that that's Bob or Julie or what have you. So I don't actually go all the way. I just keep it at the persona begins to be sort of this dispassionate utility that I'm using. How does a CX, in the CX discipline, how do you, what's our thought process on the use of personas as both good and maybe as not as good? Well, I mean, I think it's important to recognize kind of what they are and what they aren't. Um, what they aren't is a... Uh, segmentation of the market. So a persona is essentially just kind of a personification of a set of behaviors. Those behaviors can be found in any particular customer segment that you're interested in serving. The point of having it is to have a design tool. So I know that I have a customer segment that I would like to serve with this particular application. I understand that the the person, the most difficult type of individual to serve in this customer segment is Bob. Bob likes to use his mobile device. Bob is often, you know, kind of traveling internationally. So how do I get something to Bob? That's what the persona is, you know, there is meant to do. It's meant to help you identify what Bob needs and thus deliver that to Bob consistently. Um, I think where people kind of get tripped up is when they don't leverage the persona in the design process the way it's meant. 
what they'll do is, and I've seen this in our, in our dream mapping workshop, is that they'll, they'll read the persona and they'll read the scenario that the persona is meant to walk through. And then they'll begin to apply their own experiences. And that's, that's not the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise is to remove yourself. And that's the reason why we have the persona. The persona is there as a representation of this particular type of customer. And so you are supposed to be looking at the journey from the context of that particular type of customer. And I think, Not from your own context. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then I think kind of a B2B specific issue as it relates to persona um, is the question of, well, which personas should we be looking at? You know, should we, you know who are the individuals that we should be caring about in, in these different accounts that we're working with? And that kind of goes back to the complexity issue that we, that we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, and I think this, again, goes back to, well, what problem are you trying to solve? Like, if the problem that you've identified is that, well, there is a lot of issues in actually making it easy for someone to give us the money in the first place. That then should give you a, a good hint on the types of personas that you should be creating to then evaluate the efficacy of the procurement process for your customers. If the issue that you're, you're grappling with is, you know, the difficulty it is of finding support information, then that, again, will give you a good hint on who you should be looking to create personas to represent in this design process. Do you have a product that support, that's self-supported by the end users? Do you have a product that is ultimately supported by, um, you know, a help desk? And thus, we want to create that, that persona to represent some sort of help desk agent to then... You kind of walk through that process. So I, I think those are kind of the issues to kind of recap. You know, one, um, you know, kind of what the general purpose of a persona is versus what a segment is. Two, how you should use the persona and use it as a way of leaving behind your own interpretations of the events and kind of focus on what that persona is trying to achieve. And then third, you know, kind of figuring out what is the right persona for the scenario that you're trying to um Trying to represent. So, TJ, were earlier days in the B2BCX still, it can be an extraordinarily useful strategy because they're already delivering experiences. The idea is to make them orchestrated, to actually make them work on behalf of the customer and behalf of you. What's next in your mind over the next one to two years in the universe of B2BCX? What, what should be someone's underlying expectation for what, let's say, their competitors do that they have at least have to match? It depends on segment, but if we're going to talk about like B2B tech, for example, I think you're going to see a lot more focus on customer success management, um, both as a way of augmenting support, but also as a way of you know zeroing in on this idea of value realization, which is going to be the core um, conversation around you know B2B customer experience. Is the client getting value, and how do how how do we explain that value to the client? I think beyond that, um, you're going to see a lot of questions related to how we approach measurement and metrics. Who is the person that we should be surveying? How often should we be doing that? And what should we be asking that individual about? And then what are the appropriate metrics that we should be kind of leveraging to explain to the business the value of customer experience, be it revenue or references or you know, simply upward and to the right movement on some beacon customer experience metric. Those will be debates that companies will be having about customer experience going forward. 
Great to have you back. And I think I'll see you again soon on some other issues on B2BCX. Thank you, TJ. Thank you. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.